This is Dave Moss of The Unfunded List, and I'm pleased to bring you the Open Door Philanthropy Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Today, I have been invited to the office of Barbara Harmon to discuss her family giving, done mainly through the Harmon Family Foundation, located in Washington, D.C. The foundation was started by her father, Sidney Harmon, the founder of the Harmon Carden Speaker Company, and also an Undersecretary of Commerce in the Carter Administration. I'm mostly looking forward to speaking to Barbara about the nonprofit she founded, which is called the Catalog for Philanthropy. The catalog does similar work to the unfunded list. Even though I haven't met her yet, I already know we both have a passion and dedication for supporting a variety of causes. Barbara Harmon began her career as a college English professor, landing at Wellesley College in 1977, where she wrote three books and taught literature and writing for 25 years. She became executive director of the Harmon Family Foundation in 2000 and founded the Catalog for Philanthropy Greater Washington in 2003. The catalog annually features the best community-based nonprofits in the metropolitan Washington region and has helped raise over $29 million to fuel their growth. Barbara is a member of the board of the catalog and a trustee of the Shakespeare Theater Company. She received the Mayor's Arts Award for Visionary Leadership in the Arts with her stepmother Jane Harmon and was named one of Washington's most powerful women by Washingtonian Magazine in 2013 and again in 2015. She enjoys living half in a bucolic suburb west of Boston and half in the busy Penn Quarter Chinatown neighborhood of Washington, D.C. A graduate of Tufts University, she received her M.A. and Ph.D. degrees from Brandeis University. Barbara and I have a lot in common. We're both Jewish. We're both interested in the arts. We're both involved in our family foundations. We're both from D.C. And we both run nonprofits that list charities you should fund. Having lived here in D.C. and involved in the nonprofit scene, I am, of course, familiar with the great work done by the Catalog for Philanthropy, and I really look forward to chatting with her about her life and work and the purpose behind it. Hello, Barbara. Thank you uh, for having me here in your office. Let's get, uh, let's get started. Why don't you tell me a little bit about what you were like growing up? What was your childhood like? Oh, my goodness. Um, I grew up, uh, we were just talking about this, I grew up on um, Long Island outside of uh, New York City and uh, in a family of four, sort of big, mm-hmm. busy family in a very kind of traditional 1950s suburban Long Island community. Pretty homogeneous in a lot of ways, but interestingly diverse in other ways. It was a, a post-war community uh, built in the in the era in which Levitt towns were being built. There's sort of communities on Long Island where there had been nothing but farmland and all of a sudden suburban houses, mm-hmm. mostly for families of four, we were a family of six, were being built. Uh, but we had, uh, my dad was uh, building a company uh, that became very successful down the street was a policeman, uh, hmm. around the corner, uh, the dad was a fireman. Hmm. All the moms stayed home. I didn't know a single person whose mother was not at home with her kids. So it was that sort of fifties era when I think kids benefited a lot, but it isn't particularly clear to me how much the moms benefited from this arrangement. Hmm. Uh, and you know, it was a pretty easy way to grow up. Mm-hmm. Uh, not very diverse, as I said, racially diverse, but interestingly diverse economically. People really on a sort of broad scale, mm-hmm. from the policeman and the fireman and the guy who worked in a factory, to the entrepreneur building a mega business. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I lived there just about my whole life growing up before I went to college, uh, and. Um, thought my parents were a little square for living on Long Island when they, mm-hmm. hey, could have lived in Manhattan, which is where I spend my weekends. So. Ah, that must have been. I grew up in Maine. Uh-huh. Uh, there was no cosmopolitan escape for yeah. us. Yeah, but, uh, You know, interestingly, we have, um, uh, Maine does have uh, some philanthropists, and there, there was a guy up the street from us named Harold Alfond, mm-hmm. uh, Dexter Shoe Company. Uh-huh, yeah. And I think he's probably the richest person in the history of Maine. Hmm. Every hockey rink in the state of Maine is, is Alfond uh-huh. Arena. But as you were talking, it's interesting. We there was also a policeman who lived on my street. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things very helpful to me as a philanthropist is the fact that 
you know, I, I have real relationships with people who are not philanthropists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and there are people who don't, who didn't get that chance. It sounds, so it sounds like you've got to, you know, grow up around lots of different perspectives, which I just think is of the utmost, of the utmost importance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, do you remember when you first started thinking about giving? Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the, the foundation that I now run is something that has existed in different iterations mm-hmm. across my dad's and my lifetime. And in the uh, later part of my life at home, before I went off to college, there was a Harmon Family Foundation. And you said I, when you went, before you went off to before college? Before I went off to college. And you were and, aware of it? Yes, and I was aware of it. Um, but it, what we, the kids, were not, we were not involved in it. I knew that it existed. I knew that my father had philanthropic impulses. He didn't really talk very much to us about it. But we were really sort of aware that, in his mind, this was something that you did if you were in a position to do it. Mm-hmm. It was a little bit of a joke uh, in in the family that my dad, later on, um, used to send an annual letter out to all of us and say, mm-hmm. why aren't all of you more interested in the foundation? <laughs> and I would always raise my hand and say, I'm interested. And then hmm. my dad would fly off to Japan or, you know. Germany or somewhere on a business trip, and that would be the end of the conversation. But in the back of my head, there always was this sort of sense that somehow we were a giving family, mm-hmm. but were we actually engaged in philanthropy when I was a kid? Actually not. Mm-hmm. I think there was definitely in the family, though, an idea of a different kind of um, of giving back, more sort of in the volunteer universe. We were all encouraged to do that as kids, and I don't know how widespread that was. When I was growing up um, in the fifties, um, you did volunteering I volunteered as a, a. I volunteered at a hospital. Hmm. I was a candy striper. You were a candy striper. I was a candy striper. I, w- I wonder, can you still be a candy striper? Is that still <laughs> I a thing? Have no idea if anybody would. I only know it from dream TV and of stuff. asking a kid to yeah, do that. It seems like nowadays. probably you can't get no, away with that. No, I don't think so. <laughs> um, you know, well, it was I, only was it only girls that could yeah. do the candy striping? Hey, you, there weren't too many guys walking around in white dresses with pink stripes. Not then. If it's, they were, they weren't I, doing it. It's still public. rare. It's just a little bit more acceptable now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> depending it, on where in the country. Exactly. Are, I uh, so, um, <laughs> yeah, I was a candy striper. And when I went to college, the first thing I did was to join the organization that ran the volunteer work hmm. um, there. And I did, uh, I worked in a community center. I went to Tufts and I went to, I worked in a community center in Medford, which was a very economically diverse community. Um, I ran a summer camp for kids at the Roxbury YMCA, hmm. uh, and and this was just just seemed to be part of life to me. It didn't seem like I wouldn't even have named it as something special that I did. It just sort of seemed like, well, this is what you do. It it really is. It wasn't giving in the financial sense of giving, but a sense uh, of. I wouldn't even call it obligation because it didn't feel like it was imposed. It just seemed like something that felt right to me to do and that I just did pretty much naturally. Mm-hmm. So as I mentioned, I, uh, I grew up in Maine, which is uh, a place almost entirely devoid of Jews. Mm-hmm. So I did not have any sort of uh, formal Jewish education. Since I left Maine, I, I encountered some. <laughs> and it's been told to me that, it's, that it's, it's often a very important part of a Jewish education, mm-hmm. um, giving my mother, uh, who is approximately your age, grew up uh, in a suburb outside of Boston that I imagine to be quite similar. Which suburb? Uh, she grew up uh, oh, Newton. Newton, Massachusetts. Right. Uh, and so she and I was sort of talking to her about, uh, you know, how she first encountered giving. And she said, you know, a lot of the, the Jewish day school. And there was a, she remembers the Sedeca box. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sedeka means righteous giving in mm-hmm. Hebrew for the, mm-hmm. for, if, in case anyone's listening who doesn't speak Hebrew. <laughs> um, uh, did you, did, was, you said it was a fairly hom- uh, homogenous community. Was these, uh... it wasn't homogenous in religious mm-hmm. terms. Um, so there, there were a, a lot of Jewish families, but they were not by any means an exclusively Jewish community. Mm-hmm. Jews uh, living next door to non-Jews. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I did not have a Jewish education. I did do, I, I went to Sunday school. Uh, I, I believe that I was the only member of my family who did this. Hmm. My dad was a confirmed and open atheist. Hmm. My mom uh, had a very strong sense of Jewish identity. She favored my going to Sunday school. 
and I did it, but I used to get into tremendous, interesting arguments with my dad about religious matters, the existence of God, big, heavy, duty mm-hmm. stuff. And he was a tough guy to argue with. And hey, he was older our, than I was. All of our fathers <laughs> are difficult to argue with. Yeah. Uh, so he had, he had a lot on me in terms of years and experience when it came to arguing. Mm-hmm. Didn't have the sense that the little Jewish education that I got, which mm-hmm. was not a great deal anyway, had a major influence on me mm-hmm. as, a, as a volunteer, as a, as a sort of budding philanthropist or really anything of that kind. Uh, another thing, when I was chatting with my mom about growing up Jewish in the 50s in a philanthropic family, uh, she, she remembered buying a tree in Israel, mm-hmm. uh, which I then looked at. It seemed to be like a very big thing. You never... Nope. Did you uh, hear about that when it was happening? I, I remember, I mean, when you asked me about it mm-hmm. in an earlier conversation, mm-hmm. um, uh, it totally rang a bell for me, mm-hmm. but again, was not something that we did in my family. And I think I think a lot of that really was this mm-hmm. sort of, uh, I mean, my father's family... Well, you were American Jews. Yes. My father's family, uh, my father was actually born in Canada, um, in Montreal. Mm-hmm. And um, his, like his parents came from England. <laughs> My mother's uh, like parents Cohen. <laughs> came from, uh, uh, from Russia, oh. uh, but came through Ellis Island. Uh, and um, uh, they, came were the, from they were the, yes, they so were, were the probably ones, fleeing something. Uh, the Russian Revolution. Yeah. Um, so uh, they were the ones who really had this sense of Jewish identity. They, I mean, they actually ran a Jewish delicatessen. Mm, um, really? Yeah. And my mother, grew, <laughs> my mother grew up living in a room, well, a set of rooms behind the, behind the store. My grandmother mm. uh, pickled the pickles and did all of that. <laughs> she was a wonderful cook and she made a lot of the food that they, that they, that they sold in the store. Mm. So very modest uh, beginnings. My dad, also, very modest beginnings, but really did not have, I think, a strong sense of Jewish identity. Mm-hmm. My mother certainly did. Um, but I, I, I really don't feel that the philanthropic impulse in the family came from, came from that. Mm-hmm. Well, not from any sort of formal, it's not like a rabbi told you you should be philanthropic and then, right. then you were. Uh, that uh, it also never happened. Like I said, I didn't grow up um, with any sort of Jewish community or education at all. Uh, I do, there are rabbis who would argue, and I've heard this from folks that, you know, this is when they say that we're the chosen people, we weren't chosen for any sort of special privilege. Mm-hmm. We were chosen to repair the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that it, allegedly, even if, even without any sort of <laughs> Jewish education, mm-hmm. Jews tend to gravitate mm-hmm. towards this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's true, yeah. but there are some numbers to back that mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. We are a disproportionately generous people. Mm-hmm. It's about, um, the last time I looked it up, I think from the Pew report, about 30% of the philanthropy in this country and we're mm-hmm. 2% of the population. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, it can't, it can't, it's not because some rabbi told us to. Mm-hmm. Uh, when did you, you said that we, you're growing up that you weren't, you were aware of the foundation, um, but not formally Involved. engaged, not going to meetings or anything. When did that when did you become involved, like actually involved? So, um, actually about 15 years ago, hmm. uh, right at the turn of the century, uh, well, six, almost 17 years ago now, uh, I had finished writing my third academic book. I was teaching English at Wellesley College. I was a tenured professor and, um, I loved the teaching and I loved, I loved the work. I loved the writing, uh, loved the reading. I, and I think this is a little bit connected to the particular nature of the of the research and writing that I was doing. I I really had this very strong sense. I spent ten years writing one particular book. It was a big book. Mm-hmm. It was a tremendous amount of work. And you know the audience for academic books is minute, smaller now than it was even even then. And it's so, actually all I read. Is academic no, books, no, I, academic uh, monographs. Oh my god. <laughs> I feel for you. Well, it's, they're um, written for a different. They're written for a different purpose. They're uh, in order to be a professor at a place like Wellesley. They're looking for somebody that does very narrow scholarship in general. Is my well, understanding. So yes and no. I mean, it it, it scholarship for sure narrow, not necessarily um, in your field. Absolutely, uh, you're not going to be an expert at something if you're not really inside of your field. That's a lot less true now than it used to be. There's just so much crossing of fields, hmm. uh, but. When I was writing, even when I was writing this book, the, the, the idea of the book 
and this is, believe it or not, connected to your question, though. It may take me a little while to get there. <laughs> um, the idea of the book uh, emerged because I was teaching a lot of 19th century British fiction, and I kept bumping into these sort of ex unusual incidents in Victorian novels in which women made extraordinary public appearances, which is a not it's an uncommon phenomenon in the Victorian novel, which is typically understood and described as the, the domestic novel. Mm -hmm. uh, novels with romantic plots. The marriage plot is a very familiar way of describing the sort of com most common plot of the Victorian novel. So these were these were books that that included scenes of women emerging into a sort of strike scene at a mill, or walking unaccompanied through the streets of a city not done by middle-class Victorian women who are the subject of most Victorian mm -hmm. novels, being required to speak in front of a, in a jury uh, at a trial. Um, and these were, these were trying things for middle-class Victorian women to do. And so I just found these scenes really curious, like why was I seeing them? What were they about? Was there a connection from one to the next? And what was the sort of social, what was this, what were the social and historical circumstances that were likely influencing these novels at the time? And so I began, because they were novels about women and because women typically operated in the private sphere in Victorian England and in the Victorian novel, I thought hmm, these, in, these instances of women's public appearance they're kind of boundary crossing events in these novels. And so I began to sort of do some historical research into the background uh, of these books. And of course, the 19th century is the emergence of the British women's movement. A lot of people tend to think of it as really associated with and, and fixed on the, uh, on the suffrage movement, but there's a really much longer history to it that many people who study this subject date back to the 1839 Infant Custody Act, which was... Uh, the Infant Custody Act, Infant yes, of course. Infant Custody Act, right, because women but, were understood to be the property of their husbands, as were their children. And in a famous divorce case, the subject came up about huh. who would have custody of infant children. Uh, it was the, the, the husband's right to have that custody was being contested by the divorced wife. Interesting. And so it's, it's often looked at as the first piece of... Of, uh, of feminist legislation, um, even though the person who uh, brought the case would not have called herself a feminist. I think if you'd said that, no one would have. <laughs> I don't know that the term even existed. So, <laughs> what would they have said? What would they have? Uh, the, I mean, she would have said, um, Carolyn Norton, she would have said this simply was about her desire to keep her children safe and to keep them where they belonged, which was with their mother. I mean, that, mm. that is what she would have said. Yeah, uh, it is what she did say. Mm -hmm. So, um, but it is a very important piece of legislation because it starts to break into this idea that the husband and wife are one person and that that person is the husband, mm -hmm. um, as famous jurist Blackstone uh, described it. So, um, I just found this really sort of interesting topic. I began to explore it, investigate it. I read parliamentary debates. I read newspapers from the period. I read all kinds of tracts. And I really began to find that there was a tremendous amount of synergy between what I was seeing in the novels and what I was reading in the sort of historical documents. But what was really sort of striking to me in the way that it connects to what we're talking about is that at the end of this process, and it took me 10 years to write this book, I raised two kids while I was doing it, I was teaching, but I wrote this book in a little tiny room, not a heck of a lot bigger than the one we're sitting in right now. Uh, and doing that kind of archival research is, is very time-consuming and very um, private kind of work. And I found myself thinking one day, you know, this is kind of interesting. I'm writing a book about the importance of women in the public sphere, and I'm doing it in an 8 by 13 room in the back of my house that used to be my nanny's bedroom. Mm -hmm. Sort of what am I doing here? <laughs> and do I want to do this again and spend another 10 years of my life writing a book that has an extremely minute audience of specialists? Mm -hmm. Is this how I want to spend my life? And I began talking about this with a friend who actually said to me on the phone one day, I know what you should do. You should run your father's charitable foundation. And that was actually the seed of the idea. 
and a friend it, of yours. Yes, a friend of mine. So really talking to me about my about my feeling that huh. that I loved the teaching and I loved the reading and I loved the writing, but that it was very private and that it was sort of me thinking my thoughts out onto paper and that I felt like I had both a kind of a the skill set and also the inner desire to do something that had a broader, more public impact than what I was doing as a scholar. And, uh, and so this was a sort of intriguing idea to me, uh, that somehow coming out of my own research and looking at these women whose lives in, the, in novels, but also often in history, um, were sort of brave and um, boundary crossing and um, with enor enormous public impact, uh, that maybe I could do something in the world that had a broader impact than what I was doing already, which was not to say that I had not loved my, you know, 25 years of teaching, which I did love, but uh, that yes. maybe it was time to do something different. Uh, we were in the 50s, mm -hmm. and you are somewhat aware of the Family Foundation. Mm -hmm. You just, and you, you had no involvement until you're in your 50s. Yeah. I think I did the math right. Mm -hmm. A friend of yours suggests... And this, this is actually the first time that you thought about that? Or? Well, it's not the first time I ever gave or ever, I mean, did any kind of philanthropy of my own. It's the first time that I made, made began to think about making a career mm -hmm. out of, and really being focused on and, and, and very sort of consciously developing my skills and my knowledge and my ability to give in a broader, bigger way than I had before. Mm. Um, it's certainly not the first time I made a donation or involved I would, my own, I would hope. or my own, my own family in mm -hmm. giving, which we 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 had done ourselves as mm -hmm. a family for a number mm. of years before that. Um, and talking about philanthropy with my own kids is something that I did with them when they were a relatively young age. What was the so? Let's say if your if your friend had not suggested this to you and you'd never had the idea, what what do you think would have been the succession plan for the for the foundation? Well, that at that time, I, there really was no succession plan. It was a, the the foundation was a, a pretty informally operated affair. My dad, in later years, I'm familiar with described it to <laughs> other people. So I get to say this because he he said it himself as the Squeaky Wheel Foundation. Oh. So it was actually a pass-through foundation, um, at least in the iteration that I encountered it in. Can you uh, explain, explain what, what a pass-through pass foundation. foundation is? So the, the assets for most private foundations are in a particular location, and there's this uh, obligation to spend 5% of the assets every mm -hmm. year. Um, in a pass-through foundation, it's really just, in, you can think of it as an empty bucket. Um, it's got the structure of a foundation, but it doesn't have any assets. So the assets are somewhere else. They could be somebody's bank account. They could be in a charitable remainder trust. They could be in any kind of estate mm -hmm. planning vehicle that, for one reason or another, was of a benefit to somebody to create at the particular time that money was available to put it into that vehicle. So in our case, um, the assets were in a charitable remainder trust, and we were allowed by law to move a certain amount of those assets into the foundation. And when, but but because there were, the bucket was empty otherwise, there was no particular obligation to do anything with it. So what my father would do, and this is why he called it the Squeaky Wheel Foundation, is somebody would approach him with an idea that resonated for him, and he would give money to it. And he might give a lot of money to it, but then he would let it go. He wasn't really a manager of that. Mm -hmm. He was managing a big, complex business mm -hmm. and had clearly a philanthropic spirit or he wouldn't have created the foundation but he really didn't have the interest in in building it and managing it the way he did in in his in his work life mm -hmm. so and because he had the freedom to give or not to give as he chose to do he would move in money when he wanted to move it and then spend it and move it out mm -hmm. um uh when i took over uh the foundation we just did a calculation, sort of if, if, if the charitable remainder trust is our asset base, what would, what would 5% of that be? And that's what, we, that's what we did. We just pretty much spent that yearly, unless we made an extraordinary gift, as we did a number of different times. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it really interested me to sort of sit down and figure out, okay, here's this person who has a philanthropic impulse and a philanthropic spirit, but isn't 
he's not the kind of guy who's going to sit down and write a mission statement. But that doesn't mean that there really isn't a kind of underlying principle at work here that may be unstated or underarticulated, but it's really kind of there. And if you look at the history of the gifts that have been made, sort of what would you see, what would you find? So that's what I did in the mm -hmm. beginning, was really just to look at what the foundation had done uh, and to take that as a kind of donor intent and see what I could understand from the, from the giving that, that had been happening and then to really begin to shape what we were doing in a more um, less opportunistic and more directed kind of way. Mm -hmm. So I worked um, briefly at a place called the Seed Foundation. Mm -hmm. I believe you served on the, yes. on the board of directors there yeah. once. And I remember uh, when they were, te uh, part of my responsibilities was uh, to do research on foundations. Mm -hmm. I used a, uh, the foundation directory online to mm -hmm. do the research and such. I remember when I was being trained, the, the woman who was training me on how to do this did not come from a philanthropic background. And so there were some things I knew from, from virtue of my background that she, that she did not, even though she was a more experienced fundraiser than mm -hmm. me. And in particular, I remember we were looking up, we looked up a foundation, and it, they, had given, they had given considerably more than they had in, in assets. And, she, and I remember she said, well, that must be a typo because, <laughs> right? And she starts explaining, like, she knows things that she's heard. They have to give 5% away. They have to do this, they have to do that. And I, and I just remember thinking, like, no, they prob they're probably keeping the money in a crat or something. Mm -hmm. I think I said clat. Because I think we, we actually had a, we have a, there's a moss, moss loving clat. It's mm -hmm. one of my favorite <laughs> things that exists, right? And who, what 24 year old kid knows about that stuff? Right. Right. <laughs> right? And she, I remember it actually ended up causing, like, we ended up not having a great, um, I, I didn't handle that particularly, I was 24. Mm -hmm. I handled lots of things poorly. Um, but I just, I think there's a lot of people out there that, um, you know, they, they, they never wanted to ask a question about the foundation and, it's in, and when you get the answer, it's quite mysterious. Mm -hmm. There's a CRT somewhere. Like right. it's, um, it's very, very interesting. In the end of the day, foundations though are there's a pile of money somewhere, right. uh, and uh, and the money goes out. Yeah. What I, the way I like to explain it to people is, it's like you're trying to convince a family what they should have for dinner tonight. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, take the word, take the phrase family foundation, and you go right away. You know, fifty percent of it is family, and fifty percent of it is foundation, and <laughs> you know you really there's family dynamics to deal with there mm -hmm. you know there's there are legal and compliance and irs matters to deal with and then there are family relationships and there are differences in the way people think about giving there are differences in interest there are differences in how managed or unmanaged they want something to be mm -hmm. uh, and all of those things have to be navigated if you're going to make a success of doing this as a family. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, some family foundations end up being run by outsiders. Ours has never been. Mm -hmm. uh, and the current Harmon Family Foundation is in fact a sort of traditional foundation with an asset base that gives away actually more than 5% a year. So now when now the, the, the uh, today's prospect research researchers will get an accurate That's correct. picture of what you're That's doing. Correct. I do think that's useful for folks, especially if they're going to end up uh, approaching you, you want them to know what the real numbers are. Right? Yeah. Uh, when you say, uh, when you mentioned that, uh, was it your father's term that it was the squeaky, the squeaky wheel, squeaky wheel foundation, right? right? Yes. So that if I, if I'm hearing that correctly, it means that in order to get a gift, one would have to squeak in a way that Cindy Harmon could hear you, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. is not something everybody, I mean, uh, even exactly. some of the best squeakers out there. That's right. Uh, so today, in order to do, to, is it the same thing? True. Do they need to be able to find their way into? Um, into your earshot? Well, I don't know if that's really, really true. Um, I, I do. I pretty much do do my own grant development, but I don't do it based on based on who I know. Mm -hmm. So for my father, it really was a situation where a friend would come and say, "I'm involved in such and such a project," and lay out the case and tell the story. And actually, I have to say, when I looked at the things that we had given to, they were good things. So the people who were talking to him, who had his ear, as you say, were not proposing bad things or crazy things, um, mm -hmm. uh, but they certainly were, by and large, friends. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they had his ear. I don't believe that I operate that way. What I have done is to do sort of real grants development. Well, back in 2000, when I began to do this work, and got hired by my father and my stepmother to, to run the foundation. I had to do some digging to 
find what we had done. And not some, not that I couldn't see where the actual checks had been mm-hmm. written, but sort of what was the history of this grant? Sort of how did it come about? Why is it shaped the way it is? Because yes. some of some of them were endowments, and there were there were things that I needed to really figure out. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one interesting case of a grant that it really needed to be rewritten in order to make it work. Um, and so to 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 do that, I had to find out who the players were, how it had come to pass who the best person to talk to was, where to move up the chain of command in order to really get to the person who was going to help me reshape this grant and make it operate the way I thought that it, it should. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what I do is I, I've taken what we collectively decided was the implicit mis- mission of the foundation, which was to fund in the arts, to fund arts at the intersection of youth development Hmm. Something that really emerged, especially after the uh, 2008 financial crisis, where we really began to feel very strongly that um, that we wanted to do arts-related work that was going to help kids in crisis, kids at risk, and that we were going to continue with this education work that, again, had been part of the, as it were, the family portfolio. But for me, I wanted to identify who the potential grantees were that would not typically have had my father's ear. And that's actually also how we came to create the Catalog for Philanthropy, because it seemed to me that it was, it was really easy to see sort of the mountaintops, the big players in the field, and if you couldn't see them, they could get your ear, Squeaky Wheel Foundation, um, or Squeaky Eye Foundation, if you're looking at a visual metaphor, yeah. tops of the mountains, right? <laughs> um, but I had this sense, and, and I think some of it came from some of the work that I did as a college student in you know, community organizations and the Roxbury YMCA mm-hmm. and other places like that. Yeah, that must that, have been useful experience. Oh, they were amazing experiences. That there was just unbelievable work happening at the grassroots level that my dad really wouldn't have been in a position to see, that honestly I wouldn't have been in a position to see, that I suspected many philanthropists mm-hmm. would not see. These organizations would be hard to find. They wouldn't have anybody's ear. Mm-hmm. And what what would happen if we were to create an instrument that would make these folks audible uh, and, and visible? Uh, to people who otherwise would not know about them. And that was really sort of the origin of the seed of the idea that became the Catalog for Philanthropy here in Washington and all the sort of related uh, programs that we could have created around it. And I now source the majority of my grantees from the Catalog for from Philanthropy. The, from your own catalog? Yes. And it's it's really based, for, in my mind, on a on a commitment to funding work that's happening at the grassroots level. Mm-hmm. And I feel it even more powerfully now these days um, as I hear more and more stories about people that I think are going to be at risk, um, will lose services that they have depended upon uh, and will really need the help of this community at large um, to uh, uh, step up to the plate and dig deep and help our neighbors here close to home uh, who are going to need help. Uh, I think we don't know yet what the new budget's going to look like. There's just too much, an awful lot of conversation about what's going to get cut and what's not going to get cut, and whether the budget's going to go through or it's not going to go through. Mm-hmm. But something is going to go through, and I think it won't look good for many of the folks that I speak to and talk to now in my work as a philanthropist here in Washington. I think you were right, particularly and in the in the arts. So. But across the board, I mean, if, if, if the social safety net gets cut, it's going to affect everybody across the board. And even organizations that don't get government funds, mm. I think, are going to see their client base increase because people are going to have needs that they did not have before, whether they are mm-hmm. you know, become food insecure or they become homeless or any of these sort of, you know, fundamental social safety net services that the government has provided, if those start to dissolve, shrink, disappear, I think we're going to see a tremendous amount of increased need. Um, and we're going to see it at the community level. 
I think there's, you know, a lot of giving has happened around important issues like Planned Parenthood and uh, uh, civil liberties. A lot of money has gone to these causes. But I think we're also going to really begin to see, I, I hope that's not the case, but I think it may well be the case, going to see a lot of need at this community-based level. And so for me, I actually don't accept unsolicited applications, but I reach out to people mm -hmm. to make applications. And they're people that I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, they're people who I think are doing really great work in areas that I know something about. Because I think if you don't know something about the field that you're funding in, you're not going to be a good grant maker. Uh, so I can't fund everything. I don't fund everything. I fund things that I feel I know about, can learn about, can deepen my knowledge about so that I can be a better grant maker. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's, how I, that's how I operate. Let's keep talking about the uh, catalog for a while. Mm -hmm. Do you want this to stay just in Washington? Do you think, I think this obviously has potential for, Absolutely. for everywhere else. It's kind of interesting because you're, just as you were saying before that people in Baltimore don't want to give to the Washington DC seed school and vice mm -hmm. versa. Uh, it's also interestingly the, the case in a region like this one, which is the, the D.C., Maryland, nearby Maryland and Virginia mm. counties and cities, that people in Maryland will give in Maryland and D.C. Mm. and people in Virginia, Virginia and D.C., but that Virginia and Maryland don't I've, give to each other. I've even heard people, people have a problem. They don't want their Montgomery County donation going to Prince George's. Exactly. So <laughs> nevertheless, we, we do see that as long as we sort of keep... The, as long as our geographic footprint is big enough to be meaningful, we started out, at, the Catalog for Philanthropy started out as District of Columbia only. And people said to me in year one, and actually that was hmm. a totally practical decision. There was one person running that project, and that person was me. Mm -hmm. So I did that in order to... Well, DC's a big city. It's, it's more than enough work to do that. It's strictly practical. Let's just yeah. stick to the district. But everybody said to me, really, honestly, in this region, people don't think of D.C. as just the district. They think of it as the district in nearby Virginia and Maryland counties. And, of course, that's a lot where, where a lot of the donors are as well. Yeah. So we expanded to be Greater Washington in the second year. But the, the idea really was, how do you make the footprint big enough to be meaningful, but small enough so that enough people will care about the organizations that are in the catalog and that there'll be enough intersection and enough cross-fertilization so that it won't be, you know, uh, for example, if you, if you do it in a state, will people in the northwest section of the state give to people in the southeast section of the state? Probably not. So oh, yeah. you want to well, do I can a tell you in Maine, there's, well, there's yeah. going to be Portland donors and not Portland donors. Yes. So it's, it's just tricky. And so mm -hmm. I, think, I think the idea of a metropolitan region works really well for a concept like this because you get enough people who really are caring about that area, who to whom you can mail things, mm -hmm. to whom you can... Uh, I suppose it makes it easier to get a physical copy in their hands. Exactly. Yeah, that hadn't occurred to me. Yeah. And then even, even interestingly, obviously, the dealing with the web and with social media and digital advertising and so on, you can obviously reach a broader audience if you want to, but targeting is easier if, you're, if you limit the area. And again, you're just going to get more people who care about the issues that are, in fact, local to them and where they feel that they can have an impact. I don't, you know, I think a lot of important international philanthropy happens on a scale that's just too big for a lot of donors and mm -hmm. uh, where they really, on the one hand, you always hear the message that a dollar goes much farther abroad than it does at home, but at the same time, dealing with things like inoculating populations against malaria or cleaning water supplies. It just feels too big for some people. Uh, and I think that there is a, uh, a desire among a lot of people to do a very concrete kind of giving where they can really see the impact of the donation. And although in the catalog, we are not doing what we do see in a lot, a lot of, um, of uh, crowd uh, raising platforms uh, mm -hmm. and um, other sort of philanthropy sites that are really focused on large numbers of small donations where you see people. We've talked about this before. It's the organization started out in New York that gives, uh, you know, the terrarium to Mrs. Smith's third grade class. Oh, the Donors Choose? Donors Choose. Thank you. So, in, you uh, know, in Charles something. Uh, best. 
Is that his name? Charles yes. Best? Yeah. Wow, man. It's amazing how you just know this stuff, right? So, um, <laughs> I never met you him. You got half either. of it and I got half of it. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, no, that's a bit, that one, I think part of why people really like that. It's so concrete, yeah. right? And you watch, you give your money and you watch the donations build until the project is completed. And then they do a fantastic job mm -hmm. of feedback and showing you, you know, get photographs and letters from the kids and all of that. And people love that kind of philanthropy. It doesn't keep the lights on. It doesn't pay for the development director who's going to raise the money, who's going to free the executive director to do the work that he mm -hmm. or she is most gifted at doing. Nevertheless, it's very appealing, especially to young audiences and to beginning philanthropists. And I think that's one of the things that's so good about it. But I don't think that it can be everything. Mm -hmm. I think the catalog is in sort of that middle range where it's saying, look, if you have a donation of a thousand or two thousand dollars or five hundred or two hundred and fifty, these are small organizations. They're going to be really happy to have that gift from you, especially because you're a donor that they don't know. They mm -hmm. haven't solicited you. They haven't put any work into you. As having been in that situation, a couple at Seed, I was the one who opened the mail and deposited checks and stuff. And I can say that there isn't. There isn't much that's more, and not just that it's exciting because you have money, right? Uh, it's much more than that. A new donation has come from a new person. Yeah. Like the, just the validation. Like right. The, it is, it is some real, I'm getting a little choked up <laughs> thinking about it. Yeah. Well, someone took time out of their day to give you money because right. they like the work you're doing. That right. is really special stuff. Yeah. And you didn't have to bother them first. Exactly. <laughs> it just came that's in the right. mail. Just it's like the out. greatest thing that can happen to right. a fundraiser. So I mean, I you're think, creating that on a, it, I think probably a daily basis. Exactly. And so I think that really... We felt that if we stayed focused on the region, that we would there'd just be more opportunity for the for the donors to get to know the nonprofits, for the nonprofits to get to know the donors, for there to be more possibilities for connection and intersection than if we went super wide but thinner. Yes, absolutely, we see this as a model for regional philanthropy. It's not ever going to be a model for international philanthropy and there are plenty of great models for that already so you don't think you could so let's say it was could you do a version of this that featured international organizations nonprofits working mean, on different course, you of, could pick the global goals and of course one one could i mean i think it would it, be much i think it would be i think you're right it would be it, where would you i mean as a print catalog where the heck would you send the thing i mean it's i think that you know websites like global giving and there are other there, there are other ones that do this they work because they're strictly online. They can. Their job is to drive people to that website. Mm -hmm. They operate in a way that's not dissimilar to um, uh, to the website that we just talked about, and where you're you're seeing money build towards the completion of a project. And I think those work as online platforms. Mm. I think this works better. With the um, the slingshot guide, I had very similar experience. We were. It was national. Our programs had to affect Jewish life in North America, mm -hmm. which is very broad, which actually included Israel-based programs mm -hmm. because that affects yeah. Jewish life in North America. So pretty broad, and we were, you know, and that was it. Like they, they were working on all kinds of different issues and stuff. Uh, and we did have a print guide. Yeah, I've seen it. That we that uh, it's a but that's a major cost for us every year. Right. I think possibly the biggest cost. I mean, mm -hmm. Producing twenty five thousand um, copies of it and sending it everywhere. Yeah. Um, is you know it's it's important. It's our product. Right? Right. It's what we it's what we're raising the money to do. Right. And it creates it creates a lot of gifts for these folks. Mm -hmm. um, really, and the the but the physical aspect of it is um, is, is is important. We have uh, just a few minutes left before I think people will lose interest mm -hmm. in what we're saying. I had a few uh, a few more questions. Uh, to I wanted to go back in time. Uh, as I may have mentioned, my parents have a number of PhDs. And uh, I do not, which was a big deal. I grew up on the cam on campus, two professor parents, <laughs> yeah. right? It's, uh, but it's not like a hardware store that you can just inherit. Right. In fact, they were going to make me get a PhD too, which uh, which I didn't want to do. So I'd love. When did you decide that you? Were, I mean, it's a very big commitment. Mm -hmm. It takes for I don't know how long Six it took years. you, yeah. uh, but sometimes yes, yeah, longer than becoming a, a veterinarian, right? So <laughs> when did you when did you make that decision? Um, I don't think I ever even made the decision. Uh, At some point you had to enroll and right, <laughs> fill but, out paperwork um, and such. But when I, was a, <laughs> when I was in elementary school, I wanted to be an elementary school teacher. When I was hmm. in middle school, I wanted to be a middle school teacher. When I was in high school, I wanted to be a high school teacher and so hmm. on down the line. When I was in college, I wanted to be a college teacher, and the way to do that is to get a PhD. Um, I also I was in college in the in the, in the late 60s. Mm -hmm. 
there was an awful lot going on, late 60s, early 70s, on college campuses. It was extremely distracting, a lot of political stuff, political actions. Yes, I've heard power a thing group. or two. Yes, it was a hot time to go to school mm-hmm. and a distracting time. Literally one day, one of my friends said to me, so where'd you apply to graduate school? And I said, oh my God. I I was so <laughs> absorbed in what was going on on campus that I had just simply not applied. But I, I, I simply always wanted to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really think about, despite what your dad said, and I totally understand that, I didn't <laughs> really think about it as a movement towards specialization. Mm-hmm. I saw it as an opportunity to teach college. Um, and in fact, at a place like Wellesley College, where I spent the vast majority of my career, I had a couple of one-year jobs at other places before that, mm-hmm. uh, you were expected to be a generalist. So you might get your... I actually got my PhD in 17th century literature. Hmm. And you can imagine how many courses in 17th century metaphysical poetry are available to be taught on a small college campus in any given year. I would think Maybe the majority of one. them are probably at Wellesley. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, there was one course a year in 17th century poetry for me to teach. And so very quickly the question was, well, what else do you like to do? And what mm-hmm. else do you want to learn? And what else do you want to be good at? So... And I eventually ended up migrating to to a new field. Uh, but I, I taught Victorian novel, I taught modern novel, I taught writing, I taught poetry classes, I taught 17th century poetry, I taught 17th century literature, I taught Shakespeare, I taught lots and lots of different mm. things. And that's a pretty much, a, that's a pretty common phenomenon, perhaps not at certain universities, but absolutely at, at colleges. Mm. And so that, that actually was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a teacher mm-hmm. and I wanted to write. Uh, because for me, I think with my fingers, There's, I feel there's a direct line from my brain to my fingers. Even when I'm doing my grant making, yep. I am writing while I'm thinking mm-hmm. things through. Uh, so the other thing that I find that, uh, that I find interesting, like I said, my parents are, uh, are professors. Uh, my mother uh, went to Wellesley and graduated in 1969. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've, and in fact, there's been a, a number of books. <laughs> written about that class. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of the other um, people in that class were pretty famous. Pretty famous. Um, one in particular, but also, you know, it is uh, uh, Janet Hill was in that class, L.D. Atchison, uh, Wendy, Wendy Paulson, uh, who was actually the first major gift I ever fundraised. Mm. <laughs> the, uh, so, um, quite familiar with all that. The one thing I'm also familiar with is once someone, once one becomes a tenured professor mm-hmm. at a place like Wellesley, that's a, that's a pretty nice situation you've got for yourself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, for folks at home who may who may not understand that basically means you cannot be fired. That's right. Not a lot of people choose to leave, decide to, and you that's get your right. summers off and Very... you get money to travel and do your research. My father was a golf historian. We used to play golf for free. <laughs> not a lot of people, and you obviously would have been able to buy whatever book you wanted, right? And uh, I mean that's for someone. My who, husband's who made... my husband's a college professor at Wellesley, so yes, he still is. Yes, he still is. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, but you, I mean, the, the, the choice to leave is not one made often. Um, Very rarely made. I mean, was it the, I mean, the. Was it tough? The, yeah, was it, do you, I mean. It was tough. It? Yeah. it was tough. It, How I, long did you take to make took, that decision? It took me about five years to actually decide to leave. So mm. in the beginning, I actually thought that doing the philanthropy work would be a hobby that would take the place of the time <laughs> I was spending writing. Mm. That didn't work out very well. Yeah, I know um, so many people who thought it would yeah. be a hobby. In the beginning, they thought it would be a hobby. Yeah. I, I still, thought the unfunnelist would be something I do yeah. in the evenings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, for me, too, there was the issue of my father. So um, mm. he would periodically call me and say, I need you here for a meeting. Mm. And I would say, you didn't say no to my dad lately. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, no, dad, I'm not coming to that meeting because I'm teaching tomorrow. And he would say, well, I don't really care for your teaching. I need you down here. And I would say... Listen, you hmm. raised me to be a certain kind of person with a sense, very strong, powerful sense of responsibility. I teach two days a week. I have office hours. I grade papers. I do research. I'm, I'm working full time, but I teach two days a week. And when I have to teach, I am in the classroom. I have never missed a day of class. I've been sick. I have lost my voice. I have had all kinds. Of, I've, been, I've driven through a hurricane to get to class. I, I don't miss classes, and I'm not missing this class tomorrow. Well, that was acceptable <laughs> once, but you don't say that two times and three times. So it just quickly started to feel really difficult to do, and that was even before we started the Catalog for Philanthropy. So um, I, I would take a, 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 a one 
course of unpaid leave, and then I would take two courses of unpaid paid leave. Then I took two years of unpaid leave. Then I had to come back. Then I, mm-hmm. so it was a back and forth process, a kind of slow withdrawal. Uh, and when I finally had to make the decision to come back or not to come back, I just knew that I could. I had I had made a change. So mm-hmm. it really, I would say, it 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 befell me. I embraced it, but I really didn't sort of say, okay, here's my deadline. I'm going to make a decision by this date. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it was, it was, it was hard. I had always, as I said, I had always imagined that I would be a teacher. Mm-hmm. And so it was a tremendous sort of identity change to say, well, that's not what, that's not who I am anymore. Uh, you're not, you think you're not a professor right now? I'm not a professor hmm. right now. I actually, every year have the wonderful experience of going back to Wellesley to teach a class for a friend of mine who teaches a philanthropy class at Wellesley. It's one of these classes. They teach a philanthropy class. Yeah. He's a sociologist and, um, uh, he's interested in philanthropy as a, as a subject, uh, and has a grant that he's gotten for his class. It's actually a class in which students learn about grant making and actually give away money. Hmm. Oh, they give, they They actually have a pot of money that they can give away. So they do all the research. That class is not available. No, not, not to me either. Um, That's awesome, though. But I come and he, I come and talk to his class every year about uh, sort of the connections between a liberal arts education and philanthropy, and sort of what I learned as a teacher that were skills and um, attitudes and beliefs and ideas that inform my current work and that also informed what I did when I was a teacher at Wellesley. And I think that's those are important lessons for kids to hear because I think very often they they think you know I need to be get a degree in economics because that tells me what I'm going to do when I get out of college. And as we know, you know, Mm -hmm. most jobs and missions in life do not have an academic major written upon them. Uh, I'm very happy. I majored in theater arts Mm -hmm. and um, um, I'm quite happy that I did. I can't think of, you know, theater is just people coming together to make something greater than any one of them could do. Uh, you have to know your role, right? You have to <laughs> you have to be able to specialize. Like it's applicable to almost everything. Right. Uh, and you also have to learn. Like what, one of the things I learned a lot about is this, you do a new play in a new period. You have to be able to learn, quickly learn information about that, mm-hmm. which I find very relative to uh, to philanthropy. Uh, so uh, you've been kind of to share some of how uh, some of your experiences of um, how you first got involved in the uh, in your family's philanthropy. Uh, I had a kind of a jolt of a start to it. Uh, you got your PhD, which we were just talking about, from Brandeis, which is mm-hmm. a beautiful school. Mm-hmm. Uh, my uh, great-grand-uncle uh, made the gift to make Rose Art Museum. When you were at Brandeis, did you ever get a chance to yes. stop in there? Mm-hmm. It's really nice. Beautiful museum. Really nice museum. And I was aware that it was named after, I grew up knowing it was, because my grandmother was Doris Rose, and I understood it, and we would go there, and she loved going there, because you could be a real big shot there, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but like I, you know, as a young, I never really thought about it. Uh, and then one day they were facing a very big operational crisis and decided that they were going to start selling Picassos and oh, Rothko's. I remember this. Yes. Out of the, oh yes. Out of the I, oh, they got into big trouble about that. Yes. Well, for all the lawyers that Brandeis has, the descendants of Louis Rose have more lawyers. Yeah. Thank goodness. <laughs> uh, they did. They sold off a couple uh, very nice pieces of art for. Uh, and it, basically, this was art that you don't normally that doesn't get sold normally. Yeah. Uh, so they, they kind of took a, a, a bath on it. They were in a very difficult situation, one that I've never been in, and I don't know what I would have done in the case. But the very first thing I was asked to do for my family philanthropy yeah. was to sign a letter <laughs> as yeah. the descendant of mm-hmm. this guy who died in 1958. Mm-hmm. Which I don't know. You can tell by looking at me. I I didn't. I never got a chance to meet this guy. No. Um, did you ever, have you ever had a, uh, a, 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 probably not something that required legal action, mm-hmm. but have you ever had a, uh, you know, a, a, a bad experience with a, with a grantee? I don't necessarily need you to like, tell me who, but, uh, um, sometimes no. we, sometimes the, the, you know, the, the signals get crossed or. Yeah. No, uh, I actually haven't. I have had, and I actually inherited, um, what I thought was a, uh, a troubled grant. Hmm. Um, it's and, better than bad. Yeah. And troubled is what I troubled. Start it, it, The way it was structured and designed to, with perfectly noble purpose, to do something um, that was worth doing, it was just, it was 
it was badly designed and it was very, very tricky to figure out how to fix the problem, to figure out what the problem was, why it wasn't working. And I actually found out that it wasn't working because I got an end of year letter from the grantee that was, who was administering this grant that said something like, well, we might have wished that the students at X school had gotten greater, taken greater advantage of this program, dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, hmm, I wonder what that's about. That was where my sort of critical, you know... Might have wished. Might have, well, they might have wished. Well, they might have, we might have wished. And I thought, I really do wonder what this is about. And I don't know where this grant originated. I don't know mm-hmm. what its structure is. I don't know who imagined it. I don't know who's invested in it. I need to find out. And it was really honestly like doing an archaeological dig to figure out who was that person who first got my father's ear? How did that person feel about talking to me about this grant? Would this person fill me in and tell me who the sort of key players were? Were they people I could get an audience with? Mm-hmm. How could I, and, and what could we do together to fix the problem? Uh, and it was a major project. And what we ended up doing was taking a grant that was supposed to operate over a five-year period and then be used up, but wasn't, basically, it sounds weird to say this, but there were too many services being provided for the, mm-hmm. for the entity to actually absorb and make use of. Mm-hmm. So it was designed to be spent over five years. And what I ended up doing was turning it into an endowment mm-hmm. um, that, uh, and, and restructuring the relationships that would really make it work. And then making sure that it existed in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. So it was actually one of the very first things that I did. And mm-hmm. it, was a, it was a really interesting lesson in um, making sure that when you make a grant to a community organization, you're actually giving, some, giving them something that they can use and that they want and that they have genuine buy-in for. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the people who are really going to be involved, this, in this case it was a school, and yet there was very little conversation with the faculty who were actually going to have to be incorporating these arts mm-hmm. programs into the curriculum. So it, 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 was, it was really interesting. And for a novice philanthropist like myself, uh, I was dealing with some pretty snappy folks. But it was a thoughtful process, and it worked. Uh, and that grant still exists. It's an, as I said, it's an endowment. And it's now operating the way it's supposed to work. Uh, and it really was honestly no fault on anybody's side. It just it perhaps wasn't thought through as carefully and thoughtfully as it might have been. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it can be a real challenge. I mean, this was the same situation with me. I didn't, I wasn't involved in the original gift. And it was, yeah. we had, I remember my uncle, there's a lot, we had to look up lots of documents from, you know, when this stuff originally happened. And, Who promised um, what? And, and, and yeah. what was supposed to be happening. And, and, and that was how we have ended up proving to them that no, you can't That's, sell art yeah. to pay operational costs. Yeah. And I think it can be re- like inheriting a grant. Mm-hmm. It can be can be really uh, can be really challenging. That's the only one that I ever really had to. Yeah, um, it can be very tricky. But I had to. I, I never. I didn't have to take the lead on anything. But having to take the lead on a grant that was initiated by somebody else mm-hmm. must be. I mean, I think a lot of people want to just wipe Leave the, it alone. Wipe, or wipe <laughs> the slate the slate clean and start uh-huh. and and start making you know making new decisions over which which would be could be quite harmful to the, the nonprofit ecosystem. Right. The, exactly. Of those of those grantees. Uh, what do you think are some of the more exciting things happening in philanthropy today? We've, we've talked about things like crowdfunding and stuff like that on this call. What are the things you're most excited about for the future of philanthropy? Well, one thing I'm excited about is the idea of disseminating this catalog for philanthropy model. Cause I think it, it, it's very clear to me that it works. Mm-hmm. Um, we raise, we're, we're raising now over $4 million a year that we know of for community-based nonprofits. Mm-hmm. And there's and you a, can't possibly track all we the cannot track it all. We just can't. And we're learning a lot too about the needs of community-based nonprofits. So we've built a whole suite of training programs around the catalog that could move with the model to another city or could be a later phase as it was for us Mm -hmm. or some new city. So my hope is that within the next three years, we'll identify three sites and, um, and get this model up and running in Mm -hmm. other cities in the region. And I, I think that there's just a tremendous amount of, this is to say nothing about the importance of international giving, but I do think that there's a very strong, um, sense that people have these days of 
a sense of community, maybe a reaction to feeling mm-hmm. a sense of threat. And I'd say they either have a sense of community or they would like to have. Right. They say, this is, this well is a put. way that you can that's get right. one. Yeah. That's right. I think that's, that's, that's exciting for me. Um, me as well. And I, I really, uh, I will see that happen <laughs> by the three-year mark. Mm-hmm. Um, that's your, your goal? You want to be in three more cities? Yes. In the next three years? By the end of, but in the third, we have a, a new strategic plan, but, and, 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 Focusing in on disseminating the model, beginning in the third year, is 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 the plan. Hmm. Um, and if there are, if a major philanthropist from another city is listening, <laughs> they should get in touch with you. Yeah, with absolutely. The, with the catalog. Absolutely. Um, I, I think too. Um, I've recently been hearing about something that I think is kind of interesting. So um, I think collaborative philanthropy is 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 interesting, especially for large problems that are really challenging to mm. solve on one's own. Um, so for example, here in Washington, uh, the community foundation is starting something called the resilience fund. Hmm. Um, it is looking for donors who want to make a significant contribution and to work on things like policy and advocacy around key issues like immigration, transportation, and whatever else comes along as it comes along to sort of stay on top of the political situation And again, where that's a situation where it's awfully hard as an individual philanthropist to have an impact, but if you get together with others who have some significant capacity to give and a leadership and brain power uh, and the ability to to do something bigger because you are working in collaboration with others... I think we may see that as a as something that's going to come down the pike in the in in the next um, in the next few years. Uh, I agree about both of those things. Uh, obviously, I, I see value in lists of nonprofits you should fund. Right. Uh, but also, particularly, I think you're absolutely right on the collaborative stuff. Uh, that's something I can tell you that my grandmother didn't know any of the other funders of any of the things that she funded. Yeah. I mean, uh, other than to say hello at cocktail parties. Yeah. Certainly, they weren't talking about well, let's do this giving or whatever. Yeah. Uh, my The first major giving I, I got involved with after that the Rose uh, situation was to, to join the Slingshot Fund, which mm-hmm. is a which is a collaborative exactly. giving circle. Uh, a friend of mine, um, uh, some friends of mine founded something that used to be called the One Percent Foundation. This was before Occup- the Occupy movement. Yeah, so right. They, they changed their name to Giving Circles Fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a really great website. Anyone... Uh, or any group of people can create their own giving circle. You can set it up so it takes an automatic uh, amount out of your paycheck or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they often pick certain topics and stuff. I think it, I think you're you're absolutely right for if you want to pick an issue, right? So just a, you can you create a little community and you're having impact and you're going to end up making I think smarter grants because you're going to have more perspective behind it. Yeah. For some reason, we set up. I think the foundation system is somewhat to blame. Mm-hmm. The site that we're all alone, we're all we're all on our own. I remember the first Slingshot Day, right? The Jewish funding community is very narrow, and they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're funding a lot of the same stuff. There were two major Jewish philanthropists there, and I was sort of listening in on them. And as I listened in on the conversation, I realized that they're meeting for the first time. Mm-hmm. These, these both guys in their 80s who had been making major gifts to the same things for decades. Yeah. And this was the first conversation they had ever had. It was at a next-gen event. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think that, that since then, like that, that is there's a lot of interest in that. It's great to hear a philanthropist of your caliber feels the same way <laughs> are there current philanthropists out there that you that you admire that you might want to give a what, what my generation would call a shout, shout out, out to, to my generation uses that term do they say well. shout out as well? oh, i don't even know i don't well, I have kids, i'm not hip so I, I don't actually know if, it's, if we're still saying shout yeah, out shout out who knows <laughs> shout out may be old by this point it's uh, a philanthropy podcast so i don't yeah. think hip is necessarily what we need to be you know, it's funny. My my identification is more with it, with nonprofits than it is with other philanthropists. Well, there is there a nonprofit? You do you run a nonprofit and are fundraising and stuff? So that makes sense, right? But also, there... I mean, my my what drives me is is sort of seeing the seeing the work in action and seeing the people who. I mean, a lot of nonprofits in the catalog for philanthropy, for example, are founders. So these mm. are people who. See a, see a need, figure out as I might say I did in starting the catalog. See a need, figure out how to 
uh, how to fill that need. Very, you know, often and certainly true of most Moses of style leadership. You have a vision, and you and you know where the Holy Land is. You're going to need a lot of help, but yeah. having that vision in the first place is a, is a that's big right. Thing. And it's a it's a tough road to hoe. You know, it's not easy. You have to. Do no, everything yourself to begin with. You are took them forty years to get through the desert. That's right. Uh, <laughs> so you know you're going to fundraise. You're going to do the work on the ground. You're going to you know. I mean, the first year I did the catalog, I wrote it, I photo sourced it, I did, I worked with a designer on it, I created it looks a list. I, I did all that. I, I did everything. It's not actually a sustainable model, um, but it's a great way to get something off the ground. Mm-hmm. And then you have to figure out how to grow the organization. So I have just I have so many people that I admire, I would almost hate to single one out. I, <laughs> I admire people who have the guts and the courage to, and the, and the compassion to see something that they think needs to be done and to step up to the plate and do it often at tremendous personal cost because it is exhausting to do this work. Um, and so those are the, those, those are my heroes. Thanks for listening to this episode of Open Door Philanthropy featuring Barbara Harmon. If you're interested in learning more about the work of the Catalog for Philanthropy, check out cfp-dc.org. And as always, if you're looking for or willing to provide helpful and candid feedback on unfunded grant proposals, please sign up at unfundedlist.com. Mm-hmm.